It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. The Locked On NBA Fantasy Minute is presented by Price Picks. Price Picks is the most fun you can have playing daily fantasy basketball and winning up to 25 times your money. Go to pricepicks.com slash locked on NBA and use the code locked on NBA for a first deposit match up to $100. We are very much in the thick of the fantasy basketball playoffs. You might be starting it this week, you might be already in it, it might be a week away. And at this point of the year, with only five weeks left in the entire regular season, Playing the schedule is the most important thing. So this week, the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Los Angeles Lakers play two games only. So any fringe players you have from those teams, even guys, yes, like Kyle Anderson replacing Kyle Anthony Towns, that's not worth it with two games on. You need to be stacking extra games and you need to be looking at the teams with four games. You need to be looking at teams with games early in the week and then switching them out for teams with more games later in the week. Get more games in, play the schedule, be cutthroat with injuries and get players in to get yourself success for fantasy basketball. Jackson Gatlin here, host of the Monday edition Locked On NBA podcast. Every Monday, I cover the three biggest stories in the NBA with the local experts from Locked On. It's an awesome recap of the weekend of the NBA and a look at what's ahead. Mark your calendars on Monday to join me for Locked On NBA podcast, available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. You are Locked On Magic, your daily podcast on the Orlando Magic, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And you are indeed Locked On Magic. Today is April 13th, 2020. My name is Philip Ross and I'm the expert and site editor over at orlandomagicdaily.com. You can follow me on Twitter at philiprr-omd. On today's episode of Locked On Magic... We're going to talk about the 2010 Orlando Magic as our series looking back at the best teams in Magic history continues. Keith Smith of NBC Sports as well as Yahoo will join us to discuss a little bit about the uh, what I think is the best team in Magic history. A team that history, uh, memory may not say is better than 2009, but what I think was a much better team than 2009. We'll talk about that team's ultimate legacy, what went right, and ultimately what went wrong as the Orlando Magic did not return to the finals in 2010. We'll have a lot more fun, interesting topics as well later on this week as we continue looking back at some of the best teams in Magic history. But before we do any of that, I do want to remind you all that you can check out all the great podcasts on the Locked On Podcast. I work by searching Gravity Download Podcast for Locked On and the team you're looking for. Just like this podcast here covering the Orlando Magic with excruciating detail, there's a podcast covering every single team in the NBA with the same level of care and detail that you can only find from a local expert who knows their team best. Want the lowdown on the Boston Celtics, for instance, and what, what they're up to? You can check out our pals at Locked On Celtics. Whether it's the NBA, NFL, MLB, or college, too, or NHL as well, there's a Locked On podcast for you. Just down, search wherever you download podcasts today for Locked On and the team you're looking for, the Locked On Podcast Network. It's your team every day. Coming up on our podcast today and tomorrow, we'll have a two-part conversation with Keith Smith of, again, NBC Sports as well as Yahoo!, uh, in part one, we talk about the 2010 Orlando Magic. That's what you'll hear today. Tomorrow, we will talk about this season and where this season was headed uh, and what goes on beyond uh, beyond this year. Uh, Keith is a, a, a is our is our resident salary cap guru. helps helps me out a lot uh, understanding a lot of the salary cap stuff. 
Um, so we talk a little bit about what the Magic's future holds and and what this team is is trying to do and how they're trying to build uh, moving forward and beyond this year. Some of the big decisions coming up over the next few season uh, over the next few years as. This year, we don't really know what the NBA is going to look like, so we are starting to peer a little bit into the offseason. So next two episodes, today, tomorrow, Monday and Tuesday, definitely episodes you want to make sure you listen to. Should be a lot of fun talking about all these issues. But before we get into the history, we do have to talk a little bit about news. Uh, The first big piece of news that that I think is worth mentioning, uh, the Amway Center is being turned into a a kind of a a facility to help direct medical equipment and, and uh, in Central Florida, and obviously this is, you know, we're seeing this at a lot of arenas and stadiums throughout the country, um, and and obviously and Amway Center owned by the city, it, it, it was inevitable that this would happen. But it is good to see the, that the Magic are, are using their building and probably even their practice facility a little bit to help and assist uh, in in the effort to fight the coronavirus. So, um, you know, it, it's all the stadiums around the country have been lit up blue. I'm actually, you know, kind of staring out my window at at Orlando at Exploria Stadium. It's lit up blue. I know the Amway Center is lit up blue. Um, it's, you know, everyone is doing their part, whether it's by lending support, you know, the Magic players obviously doing a lot of charitable work around town, or even using the Amway Center as, as, a, as a holding center for medical supplies. It is, it is fantastic to hear that all this is going on. Um, the NBA is trying to tick on, trying to do what it does best, and that is play basketball. The NBA 2K Players Tournament ended this weekend with Devin Booker defeating DeAndre Ayton. I'm sure Locked On Suns will have a complete recap of that. It was a lot of fun watching some of the NBA players and, and their 2K personalities. Um, I am definitely a Pat Beverly. Um, I, will, I, I, I will definitely just shut down, shut down the game after I'm done losing uh, and, and crow when I win. Um, but... Um, uh, but it was definitely a lot of fun seeing the, seeing the NBA players show their personalities on that front. Um, uh, the NBA horse competition started off on ESPN as well, uh, which again, just this is all just a little bit of basketball distraction. You know, as, as, as Keith, you know, as, in talking with Keith, he, he just told me he's just really happy to be talking about basketball again because it feels like we've been in a little bit of a desert uh, as, this, as the league has gone on hiatus. Part of that, though, is part of the what the NBA is doing. They don't know when they're going to come back. They don't know um, how, how they're going to complete their season or, or what the season's going to look like. And, and I think the NBA is still kind of taking ideas and, and figuring all this out. All the NBA has said, all Adam Silver has said at this point, is that the league is not going is going to sit back and reassess things on May first. Uh, at least here in Central Florida, uh, the state has a stay home order until April thirtieth. So uh, at least until then, everything is shut down here in the state of Florida. Um, so, you know, we're, we're at least another couple of weeks before that. What the NBA, though, is starting to map out is what will it take to get back onto the court? As I'm sure some of you noticed uh, during a horse, it's not like players have access to world-class basketball facilities. And honestly, it's not as if a lot of these, a lot of NBA players, a surprising amount of NBA players, don't have easy access to a basketball hoop right now. Um, so there is growing concern and, and certainly legitimate concern about players needing to get back into shape and, and, and getting players healthy enough and really just, you know, kind of in the right mindset to get back to playing at a high level to avoid injury. And so one thing the NBA is doing is as they map out what it looks like is how do they ramp back up to playing basketball again? And it, it appears, according to Brian Windhorst of, of ESPN.com, the NBA is, is beginning to settle in on a 25-day program just to get us back to basketball. This isn't this isn't 25 days to, to to playing. This is 25 days 
just to just to get to the start of the season. So wherever you're you're thinking, you know, like if if, if May first, if you know, if this, it, this won't be the case. But if May first, everyone gets the all clear to start playing games again, start traveling across the country, or, or start you know initiating sports again. Again, I don't expect fans to be at games the rest of this season for 100. percent Would not surprise me if we're into October, November, and they're still a little uncomfortable bringing fans to games. Um, you know, again, this, we'll see how the you know as, as Dr. Fauci says. Um, you know the timeline is what the virus dictates. It's it's you, you can't set timelines, and so you have to you have to kind of take it take it where the medical experts you know want you to go. And and honestly, they're probably going to be conservative, so it's going to be a little while before we get basketball. But once they get that okay, what the NBA is what Brian Windhorst reports the NBA is planning to do is to give teams an 11 day stretch of individual workouts back in the training facilities where they're still practicing social distancing. So again, that's just a chance to kind of get reacclimated to basketball work again. From there, they're proposing a two-week training camp period. It is inevitable that every team is going to need a training camp period to get everyone back on the same page, just getting up and down the court, playing basketball again. Because again, even if you're doing individual workouts, even if you're touching and, and, and playing with a basketball, you are not playing basketball. As every player will tell you, games are different than workouts, than individual skill, individual skill, skill work. Uh, and so... Everyone is going to need some time to ramp back up, and and it's going to be ragged. And I think the big concern, and this was the concern during the lockout year in in 2012. This was a big concern. This was a big concern coming out of the lockout year in 1999. Um, nobody wants injuries. Nobody wants you know. No one wants like really kind of weird, odd injuries. And 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 lockout seasons and weird seasons like this. That's where you get a lot of injuries because you get guys playing at a high level, pushing their bodies to a point that they aren't used to being pushed. They, they lose the flexibility or, or you know elasticity or whatever it is. I'm not you know I'm not a PE teacher or anything like that. They lose a lot of what they've gained throughout the course of the year, going through the, the through the grind of the NBA season to to play at a high level. I mean, like Clifford says, you're ramping up to the playoffs. You don't just start at the playoffs. And and I think a lot of I think everyone's expecting at least a few preseason games. Um, if not a few exhibition games, if not needing a regular season just to get back up to playoff intensity, just to get back up to playoff levels. Because again, you look at a team like the Magic, they were playing at a playoff level. They were kind of ramping up and really playing at a high level. You don't just start back off where you were, as Clifford has said throughout this year. So it does look like the NBA, you know, they are they are soliciting plans to finish the season. They do still plan to finish the season, but it's going to take at least another you know, 25 days. So it's going to be almost a month after you get the all clear before we actually see NBA games again, before we actually see basketball being played. Um, that's that's to be expected. I think, you know, again, by all accounts, Adam Silver is is agreeing with being conservative on this and, and not trying to push to get the league back out there. The NBA wants to get back out there. They're, it does sound like they're entertaining a whole lot of ideas, but they're not going to do it until they get the all clear. I mean, Sports Illustrated had a big article this weekend about how sports is going to take a lot longer to come back than I think a lot of people realize, um, because you just don't know, you just don't know when you know when the virus is going to subside, when we're going to have enough safety precautions uh, to to make sure the virus doesn't spread again, uh, and then and then you know just just testing enough to make sure that it's not you know, kind of infecting the group once again, and and again. 
if you have a, if you start up again and someone gets sick and someone contracts the virus, you're shutting down the whole league once again. So uh, I think the NBA doesn't want that. They're going to take every precaution to to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, and and that's part of kind of ramping back up. They don't want any illnesses. They don't want any injuries when the league pops back up. So that's kind of the latest with where the NBA is at and 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 the progress that you know they're making toward returning to the court. We're obviously a very long way away from that at this point. Um, you know there there's certainly evidence that the social distancing is working. You know California California Governor Gavin Newsom's been then you know cheering it on and and saying that that you know they're seeing fewer. Fewer, fewer cases and out and an outbreak is slowing down in, in a big state like California. But social distancing, you, you don't you, that isn't the first sign. That's the, kind of the first step to ending social distancing and ending the shutdowns. It's got to be continued and it's got to just kind of peter peter all the way out. So you you keep the social distancing, you keep the the guidelines in place until well after the cases have kind of dwindled to zero, just to make sure that that the virus is completely gone. Because again. If someone still has it and they get reintroduced to, to that group and they start spreading it again, we're back where we are. So that's kind of the latest on, on the NBA and coming back. Uh, so we'll now kind of talk a little bit more about uh, the 2010 team and, and, and one of my favorite Orlando Magic teams. Before we do that, though, uh, we do have to talk a little bit about something that's really, really important. Obviously, we're all practicing social distancing. We're all, you know, avoiding going to restaurants. Here in Florida, we are all pretty much stuck indoors uh, as much as we can. We're encouraged not to go out and have large social gatherings. You know, we're under the stay-home order uh, by the state. And so, of course, for most of us, that means ordering in a whole lot more. I mean, obviously, I've ordered in a lot more. I got to I went to went to a restaurant in town. If they want to give me free advertising, I'll mention them. Lazy Moon uh, got a big, big pizza and enjoyed it a whole ton. Actually, shared 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 some of my pizza before I before I touched anything in the box uh, with 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 uh, with some with some of the people in my building. Very very appreciative. Uh, and and of course, the best way to get your food ordered in is with Postmates. Um, it's 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 a great delivery service uh, and. Always has your back whenever you're hungry, and, and of course, in a time in times like these, uh, a, a godsend at that. If you're like me, you're probably already thinking about what to eat for dinner uh, while you're eating lunch, and that's why I love using Postmates. They deliver food from every restaurant I can think of right to my door. But Postmates doesn't just deliver burgers and sushi; they actually make my life easier with grocery delivery and whatever I can think of delivery to, convenience stores, clothing stores, you name it. You don't ever have to leave your house because you're legally not supposed to. They're the essential service, and, and we, we appreciate appreciate them for them. So no more trips to the store, no more late-night fast food runs. I don't even have to worry about where to grab lunch anymore. Just download Postmates on iOS or Android, find your favorites, and get anything you want delivered within the hour. For a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. To start your free deliveries, download the app and use code LOCKEDONNBA. That's code LOCKEDONNBA for $100 of free delivery credit with no minimum purchase for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Anything you need, anytime you need it, especially in this day and age, Postmate it. No matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax experts make them count. Did you say no to a big wedding and elope at the county courthouse? That's a move. Did you go back to school to get your degree? That's a move. Did you relocate for a fresh start? 
Well, that's literally a move. Maybe you moved into a houseboat instead of a house house, or switched gears from rideshare driving to video game streaming, or you rode the stock market to the moon and back. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, getting you every credit and deduction you deserve. File with 100% accuracy and get you your max refund guaranteed. So, switch to TurboTax. Make your moves. They'll make them count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. And we are joined by our favorite free agent from writing at Yahoo Sports and NBC. It's Keith Smith. Keith, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, man. I'm psyched to actually talk about basketball instead of uh, everything in the context of, um, you know, when's the season going to come back? I'm just like to have a basketball conversation. This is, this is, this is, you have no idea. You completely made my day. <laughs> yeah. 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 We'll, we'll, we'll get to the, the, when does the NBA stuff come back? When the end of the NBA come back stuff here uh, later on in the show, because I, I can't have you on and not talk about free agency in some way, but uh, we Over the last two weeks here on, on Locked on Magic, we've been kind of exploring some of the best teams in Magic history. We could go back into our archives. You know, I talked about Dwight Howard's legacy a few weeks ago. Uh, I talked to Adam Morris of Locked on Nuggets about uh, the 09 Magic and the 09 Nuggets. But I wanted to talk to you, and, and you specifically, because A, you're, you're in Orlando, but B, you're also uh, a Celtics fan and a Celtics writer uh, in, in another life as well, to talk about who I think is kind of a, a forgotten maybe not forgotten, but uh, an underappreciated and perhaps the best team in Magic history, and that is the 2010 Orlando Magic. Um, the Orlando Magic in 2010, of course, go uh, 59 in 23. They finish second in the Eastern Conference. They go 23 and 8 over the, f- uh, or I'm sorry, they go 20, uh, let me double check my, my math here because I'm terrible at math. Um, they, they were 26 and 15 at the midway point, so they go 33-8 and eight over the final 41 games, which I think is just the most incredible run uh, in, in regular season play, at least that we've seen. They sweep through the first two rounds of the playoffs, but then they face the Boston Celtics. And, and I think what makes what, what's interesting about that team is, for a lot of Magic fans at least, the narrative is they should have never broken up the 9 Finals team. But I would argue the 2010 team was significantly better, even though they didn't make the NBA Finals. So what are your memories, before we kind of dive into what went wrong, uh, what were your memories of the 2010 Orlando Magic? Yeah, the big thing I remember is that was kind of the season for me where where Dwight was just like he he, he like became Dwight. I guess is he he was already good. Like I don't want to make it out like he wasn't good, but that year I just remember him. It was like all of a sudden it's like you 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 can't do much with this guy. If he caught that ball below the free throw line, like it was going in probably via dunk. I want to say he. I don't know if he led the league in field goal percentage that year, but I know he was really close. He was at like sixty something percent, um, rebounding machine, shot blocking machine, just absolutely dominant. And then different than they had been in the prior years as far as the, they had kind of gone to that four shooters around him. It was a little bit different, but what made that team scary was you had the additional guys like Vince Carter who could attack off the dribble a little bit still. I think it gets a little forgotten. Vince was probably, well, not probably. He was post-prime Vince, but he was still very, very good. You had Rashard Lewis, still a knockdown shooter. J.J. Redick was really, you know, starting to... to that was Redick's first, like, full season in the rotation, too. Exactly, he's, yeah. he's in and out of the rotation in 09 he, he obviously stepped in for Courtney Lee when when Dwight yep. Howard broke his face but but yep. this was Reddick's first full season with the Magic 
And so you had him doing his thing. And then you had Barnes and Petrus who were kind of like those wing defenders. And that was, I think, what made that team a little bit different than the prior teams where they had Turkaloo and those guys was you had that that wing defense presence that they hadn't had in prior seasons. And I thought that was really big. Then you had guys like Ryan Anderson was big. I had kind of forgotten until looking uh, to, to prep for this that um, Jason Williams was on that team. I forgot he was the backup point guard to Jameer Nelson. So that was just, you know, what a fun team that was you had Martin Gortat, Brandon Bass, just a good deep team, 10, 12 guys deep that could all really play. And that 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 they were tough. They had really, really tough team to to be. And that was, you know, I I'm with you when I think, you know, forgotten great team, maybe arguably the best team the Magic have ever had. Yeah. And is you know it's it's really interesting because because everyone obviously has a soft spot for the 09 finals team. You make the finals, you know, I think I think the general conclusion among the national writers in, in assessing that the 2009 finals and the 2009 Magic were, you know, yeah, the Lakers probably were the team, were the best team that year, were the team that deserved to win the title. Um, but even though it was just a five-game series and, and probably a fair result, the Magic were really, really close. Like they, they, you know, they were a young team in the finals for the first time. The stage was probably a little bit too big for them, and so they enter 2010 you know, with the championship expectation. I mean, that season was championship robust and, and the Magic sure acted like it. They they matched the restricted free, they, they matched the offer sheet from Dallas for Marcin Gortat to keep him, essentially paying him starters money to be a backup to a Dwight Howard who plays 35 minutes a game. Uh, they, they go out, you know, knowing that they probably don't have the money to re-sign Hito Turkoglu. They go out and get Vince Carter, who, yes, tail end of his prime, Still an all-star caliber player. You know, they get Jameer Nelson back from injury coming off his all-star season. They go out and sign Brandon Bass, which, you know, again, uh, you know, maybe not a huge name at the time, but proved to be a really important player for that Magic team, especially early in the season with, with Richard Lewis uh, facing his suspension. You know, they get Ryan Anderson in that deal. They, they, they really, you know, kind of doubled down on a lot of what made the 0-9 team successful and, and were just so much deeper and, and, able to, to, to kind of beat you in, in a whole lot more ways. And, 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 and I think the reason that maybe 2010 isn't viewed the same way as 09 is that ultimately they fell short of their goal. That was championship or bust. You know, you're either winning a title or the season's a failure. And, and obviously they, they kind of crash out in the Eastern Conference Finals, which we'll talk about here in a moment. Uh, but, but they just couldn't live up to the pressure. And, and I think that's probably the, the big thing about that team was they had all the talent in the world, but something was still missing to get them over the top. Yeah, no, definitely. I think what ended up happening was ultimately when they ran into that Boston Celtics team, you had a team that could lock in defensively and just made it too hard on the magic in that series. I'm I'm looking at, I don't think they, they did in game five when it was a three, one Celtics lead Orlando cracked a hundred points, won that game by 20. And, and it should, and, and we should note in game five, you know, Glenn Davis gets knocked out by concussion early yeah. in the game. Kendrick Perkins gets two technical fouls in the first half. And, you know, not that the magic didn't deserve to win that game, but you know, that, if, if, if you're an official, if you're a referee conspiracy theorist, <laughs> there was a lot in that to say the NBA said, 
this is going to game six. This series yeah, ain't ending tonight. And I think from the Celtics point of view, it was we're up three, one, even if we lose, we're still up three, two game six is back home in Boston because let's, let's set that stage too. the magic finished second in the East that year. Celtics were down to fourth that Celtics team. That was the first time they kind of took their foot off the gas since that group had come together. That was, if you, if we remember back 2008, Great team, 67 and 15, won the NBA championship. The next year, we were, we were talking about this before we started the show. They started the season 27 and 2 and were absolutely on fire. And then Kevin Garnett got hurt uh, midway through that season and never came back, was not back in the playoffs. And, and it was just that that team was really kind of a mess. And I think by the time we got to to the 2010 season, Doc Rivers realized I need to take my foot off the gas with these guys. I can't push these guys. That was the first time Garnett started getting spotted rest games. He, he played under 30 minutes a night uh, that season. So he, he was really rest rested guy there. So I think the Celtics were looking at it as, Hey, we've got game six at home. We're up three, one, even if we lose that game, but yeah, all total Orlando 90.7 points per game in that um series and that was really dead game it was very, i remember it being very slow put paced magic magic celtics games back then were always, always. just dog fights i mean yeah. uh, they were just dog fights i mean yeah, yeah i think it was fights, right was yeah. it 20 was it 2011 or 2012 when the magic and celtics played on christmas it had to be 2011 because 2012 was the lockout year but 20 i think the next year the magic played the celtics on christmas or it might be. I know they played a couple years in a row on Christmas. Yeah, here in and Orlando, each game yeah. was like in the low nineties, yeah. upper eighties. Like they just, yeah. they just, they just, yeah. they just like were just beating each other. I mean, beating each other up physically. I mean, the, the, the Magic and Celtics were two of the best defensive teams in the league. I mean, let's. I mean, yes, the Celtics had the upper hand in the series, and you look at Game One, it was ninety two eighty eight, very close game. Yep. Game two, 95-92, You know, Vince Carter had a couple free throws that would have cut the game to one. Nelson had a three pointer at the end that would have given the Magic a chance to win, to tie it. You know, the Celtics were not blowing out the Magic. They won two tight games to take that 2-0 lead. And, you know, it, sometimes it's the way the ball bounces, but, you know, sometimes it's, you know, you don't have that that little extra you need. I mean, the Magic were playing from behind in both games to to, to try and get to try and take those games and, and extend that series. And then, of course, you know, back against the wall, Game 4, Jameer Nelson has a crazy game and an overtime win. The Magic win Game 5, and it kind of feels like they might do it, and then you just run out of gas because of just all the emotion of having to fight for your life for so long against a really good team. Yeah, and I think what made it different was for the Celtics that year, there really no one could handle Dwight, but Kendra Perkins probably did the best job of, of anybody in the league at the time, one-on-one, of defending him and really making him work. I remember the whole goal for Perkins was push him off his spots, don't let him catch on the low block, get him out, you know, get him 10, 15 feet away. I remember Dwight having to make a lot of plays off the dribble to get into the paint and by the rim, and that wasn't really his thing. Um, it was more or one, two dribbles and then to the basket for him or overpowering guys inside. And then you had Garnett who Garnett's kind of thing, which was always in his career. But even at this point at age 33, he was so long and quick. He could help inside and still recover out to Rashard Lewis and, and get out to him. And I want to say, uh, I'm looking it up now. Yeah. Lewis had a pretty miserable shooting series. He only shot 17% from three point land, just four out of 23 over the six games. Only, only eight points per game. 
Yeah, and 34% overall. So that tells you the, the really the work Garnett did on him. And they, they you know, didn't fully match minutes, but pretty darn close there. And then offensively, Boston played through Paul Pierce. The whole series, they really, you know, went to him. I remember Matt Barnes. It, that was really the point where Barnes was, um, I'm going to body you up and be super physical with you um, versus anything else. And I remember Pierce was like, all right, then I'll just take jumpers. And, and Pierce, you know, really hit everything he shot for the series over 51%, 40 almost 45% from three did still got himself to the free throw line and really, really did a, did a lot there. A lot of damage. Rajon Rondo controlled the pace. So, so the Celtics really, it, they wanted on their defense, but, but offensively it was playing through Paul Pierce. And that was, you know, that, that was the Celtics team that was, um, not their last uh, great run because that last great run came with that 2012 group um, when they were kind of those those uh, beaten down wounded warriors against the Miami Heat and they pushed them and and they finally knocked them out. But this Celtics team, if you remember, around earlier they'd beaten LeBron James who and the Cavs who were the one seed. That was the uh, quote unquote they broke LeBron <laughs> series and they yep. sent him off to Miami. So you you can blame them if you hate all that super team stuff um, for that. But yeah, and then then this team went on and and doc rivers still will famously tell you this team never lost the series when they had their starting five healthy because they lost kendrick perkins in uh game six and then they ended up losing in seven games to the lakers um in that memorable game seven where just no rasheed wallace just could not make a shot all series long yeah yeah and and and, and obviously they came really close with with run our test uh, hitting that big shot at the end mm-hmm. of game seven um you know it's 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 interesting thinking back because because it, it you know it does feel you know because yes the the 2010 Magic were you know outside of the 95 probably the ba- Magic's best chance of winning a title and and it just it, it, it there there is sort of an emptiness to 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 looking back at that season and and because ultimately they failed and, and I think there's there's really no other way to put it but for for a Magic franchise that hasn't competed for championships regularly. I mean, let's let's be real. There's been two championship windows in Magic history. It was from 95 to 96 and then probably t- 2009 to 2011 was the only was the was when the Magic really considered themselves championship contenders. Um, you know, so so really 5 out of 31 years. Um, you know, you're you're a Celtics guy, you know, a lot of championships in Boston that that Celtics team in 08, you know, they they had a wide window. They they were competing for titles till 2012 and and even a little bit beyond that as they moved away from, from the Garnett era. Um, Is it, you know, just, just from your experience watching basketball and and kind of being around and and following a a team that's won a championship and a championship level team, is there just a different pressure to having those championship expectations? Does, does like my, my, like my theory with Dwight Howard, it it was, you know, kind of just listening to, you know, I listened to the book of basketball talking about his career, just kind of reflecting on, his time in Orlando. And I just kind of feel like the championship expectation and championship pressure kind of sucked the joy out of his game and, and, and made him think about things that, you know, didn't make him successful. You know, like all of a sudden it was like, okay, how do I win a championship? Like how much does getting that close to the mountaintop and, and, and trying to get over that last hump, how much does that kind of change the atmosphere and mood of the team? Yeah, I think it's really tough. I think if you eventually break through, it can carry for years. Like you mentioned with that 2008 Celtics team, that was a bunch of guys who had never won um, anything before. They were, if anything, united by the fact that they were always close but no cigar um, together as a group. 
then they made it through and they won. And I really believe that was what carried into the next several years. That was really designed to be about a three-year window that they, you know, forced open to be five. And they pushed it all the way to 2012, really kind of 2013. That by that point, though, it was very clear that that team was just kind of limping into the playoffs and was just about done. And I think for that Magic team, I think you're right. And I think one of the things that happens, too, is then what you have is kind of that, that right, we, we famously know about the disease of more when a team wins a championship, Pat Riley's kind of thing of then somebody else is going to want I, something. And, 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 and I think, and I'm sorry, I'll, I'll let no, you explain no, the disease of more, more just because I do think that's an important point. I think the disease of more affects teams that get to the finals. Like yeah. you're, you're on the big stage, you know, like I, I think famously Charles Barkley noted that the disease of more ate up the Phoenix Suns in 94. Yep. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the idea of what, what kind of the, the basic premise of that is, is the guys then, they're no longer happy. Nobody's content to just play their role. Guys always want the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And I think what ended up happening with the Magic, too, was it was, okay, we're close. And then that 2011 team, that was when then they started making all those I don't want to call them weird trades, but then they brought in Gilbert Arenas and there Jason was Richardson. The twenty and, the twenty eleven season, there was clear discontent. Yeah, but, and then they brought back Hito Turkoglu, who wasn't yeah, the same guy at that point. And, and I all mean, of a and, sudden, and, you 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 feel like with that team, it's like it's like ah, oh, you were so close. Maybe you could have rolled it out one more year, but they brought in all these guys. They never really fit. And then the next thing you know, that that to me was really kind of the start of a downfall of the Dwight era magic where they, they, they were so close. And then it was, are right, we going to push this thing forward? Let's go get all these guys. And then that's where it really all just fell apart on them going forward. Because that's that the next thing, you know, now you've got all these aging guys, the cap sheet was a mess and everything else. And then it just, they couldn't dig themselves back out of it. I mean, and to, to some extent, I, I still think they're kind of digging themselves out, out of that, <laughs> out of that fair, mess yeah. in a lot of ways. Cause you know, obviously Dwight leaving changes everything about, about yeah. the franchise. And, and I think that kind of leads to one of the more interesting questions that I think a lot of people have about the magic uh, of that year. I think the Vince Carter trade was absolutely, or the, the, Vin, the move to acquire Vince Carter, not the move to trade Vince Carter. I, I have other thoughts on the decision to leave, to move off of Vince Carter um, and, and the timing of all that. Uh, but I, I, I think the decision to trade for Vince Carter in the summer of 2009 was an absolutely brilliant move by Otis Smith. He he knew he, you know he kind of sensed Tito Turkley was a little bit of a ticking time bomb as 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 shown when he signed with Toronto and was nowhere near the same player and and yeah. the money you know whether it was the money whether it was just the fit something was was off about Turkley. Um, in this whole flip flop of I'm going to Portland and then yeah that, you know, I changed my mind I'm going to go here yeah that was definitely just kind of a yeah mess. so I I think the move to acquire Vince Carter and you also get Ryan Anderson in that deal mm-hmm. um, was absolutely the right move now you did trade Courtney Lee who was probably Dwight Howard's best friend on the team uh, and so that may have started to plant the seeds of doubt uh, within Howard for for the franchise moving forward. And, and so, obvi- and obviously when you're a small market team and you have a super, you know, one of the top five players in the league, which is, you know, I think people sometimes, you know, because there's still so much anger toward Dwight Howard, people forget that he was legitimately top five player in the league, if not top three player in the league at that time. Like he was just a force to be. Oh yeah, with. absolutely. He, yep. he was one of those guys that just by putting him on the floor, you were a title contender. Like even though the magic finished fourth in 2011, you could see like, Oh, you know, they, they were expected to be at beat Atlanta that year. They honestly, 
I, I think they would have given the Bulls a serious run for their money because Derek, Derek, one, you know, just like LeBron, there's only one guy Derek Rose did not drive the lane on, and that was yeah. Dwight Howard. And that, you know, eats up all of what the Bulls, what the Bulls would do. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, 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 Howard was that kind of player, but, you know, ultimately the Magic pushed all in in, in the summer of 2009. They were like, this is our window, you know, and, and I think that's what you have to do. When, when your window's open, you got to go for it. And the Magic, knowing they were going to lose Hito Turkoglu, they didn't want to take a step back. They didn't want to, you know, tr- come out of the finals saying, okay, you know, we lost one of our best players. We're just going to sit, going to kind of sit on that and develop, you know, let develop something or, or find a, find an option somewhere, you know, you know, you know, maybe, you know, they weren't the best drafting team. They weren't, they didn't have great draft pick at that point anyway. Um, but they, they go all in on Vince Carter. And, and I think ulti- a lot of the questions that a lot of Magic fans have is, was that the right decision? Was was going was was acquiring Vince Carter on draft night the right call for the team? I, I would say yes. Where you know, obviously we have twenty twenty hindsight, but was that the right move at the end of the day to to push to push in with him? Yeah, I think it was. I, I think I think you're right on the the Courtney Lee part. It always felt to me as kind of someone who's not necessarily a fan of the Magic, and it, this is by no means I don't dislike the Magic. I just that they're not in a team I ever really rooted for, other than for completely selfish reasons living here um, in Orlando. But I always felt like the Courtney Lee trade felt as weird as it sounds, and I know it wasn't, but it felt like punishment for missing that uh, that that layup against the Lakers. Like that's kind of how it felt. Was like, all right, you proved you can't get it done, so we're gonna go get somebody who who can. But beyond that, you got Vince Carter, who was still you know in them. He was post prime for sure at that point, but he was still very good. He was still you know a good player, and he's pretty good for for the Magic that that uh, season. And and I kind of forgotten he only really played the one well about a year and a half here in Orlando. So I, I it always felt like it was longer, but I, I know it wasn't. I remember hearing then a lot of the things of this guy takes too many jumpers. Now what happened to the guy who drives to the rim? Well, he was 33 at that point. He was no, he wasn't the, yeah. you know, 25 year old human highlight film that he was. And, and, on, and on top of that, and on top of that, like the role that he was playing in Orlando was very different than the role he was playing in New Jersey at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he, I've got the stats up here in 2009. Carter averages 20.8 points per game with a 49.3 effective field goal percentage. He's got 4.7 assists per game, 5.1 rebounds per game. So like he's, you know, he might be on the tail end of his prime, but he is still a very, very productive player. And, and obviously I think what Orlando saw in the finals in 09 was, you know, at the end of the, like the Lakers were just a nightmare matchup for them. You know, mm-hmm. the way the, the way the magic beat the Lakers in the regular season was Jameer Nelson just went to all-star God mode. Like he, yeah. he, he torched Derek Fisher and, I think some of those seeds are why the Magic tried to push Nelson back into the lineup or, or try to try to get him back there because they knew that if they had Nelson playing at that level, that was their best chance to beat the Lakers. But at the end of the day, Orlando, like the Lakers could match up with Orlando perfectly. They could single cover Dwight Howard with Andrew Bynum or Pal Gasol. They had Lamar Odom and Trevor Reza to guard Turkoglu and Lewis. Like the, the, yep. the Magic just couldn't figure them out. And so at the end of the day, Orlando, and, and I think this is just generally how things go in the playoffs. At the end of the day, you need a guy on the perimeter who can create a play and create a shot when the defense knows what's coming. I mean, yep. you know, we'll, we'll talk about this year's Magic team a little bit now, but, you know, the one thing that I think Steve Clifford, like, is kind of very, you know, not always subtly, but the undercurrent of, of a lot of the criticism, a lot of the things that, that Steve Clifford says about this year's Magic team is, you know, when you get into the playoffs, you need a guy who can beat set defense, uh, who yep. can beat a defense that's loaded up against them. And, 
at that time, Vince Carter, you know, you know, again, tail end of his tail end of his prime for sure. Uh, you didn't, and and because the Magic had so many weapons, they didn't need him to be that guy all the time. But you know, I, I, I before recording this, I watched a replay of Game Two of the 2010 Eastern Conference Finals on NBA TV, and you know, Mark Jackson, Jeff Van Gundy, Mike Breen are all saying it as as the, the game is coming to an end and it's a close game. This is why the Magic brought in Vince Carter to be yep. the guy that finishes games off, that can that can create his own shot. And can can get to you know can get to the basket when he needs to or or get off a tough shot and make it to help this team get over the hump. And I think that's the Vince Carter the Magic thought they were getting. And you know I think some of it is Vince's personality. You know like everyone loves Vince's personality now because he's so gracious and and so humble and just kind of a smooth guy. But the criticism of Vince Carter's career has always been he never could get over the hump. I mean this this Eastern Conference Finals team in 2010 is the farthest Vince Carter ever got in the playoffs and. You know, my criticism of Vince Carter at the time, and, and I, I, you know, kind of looking back at it, I still think this is valid. I wanted Vince Carter to take over more. And I felt like yes. he came to Orlando and tried to fit in too much when really what the Magic were asking him to do was go out and win us, win us these close basketball games. Yeah, I think what ended up happening was you had, and this happens anytime you make you make big moves, was all right, we need to reconfigure our our roster and the way we play. But when it comes down to it, we're gonna go to what works and what what had worked in 2009 was still the staple that was at Jameer Nelson, Dwight Howard pick and roll. And if Nelson couldn't find Howard on the roll, it was find a shooter to the outside. And all too often, I remember that team, part of the reason why they weren't a great um, offensive team in the playoffs was because, and I, I, I'm like a broken record with this, but in the playoffs, you scheme for an opponent. So you, you, you can really scheme for them. And one of the things that the Celtics were able to do was, are you want to run that? Well, we're going to make sure Howard's taken away. And we're going to make sure that it takes you so long to get into it. By the time you're kicking it outside, there isn't a chance for Carter to attack us off the dribble or anybody else. And they didn't really have anybody else who could do that. It was really just Carter. And I know in the prior year, it was really just Turk. But Turk wasn't a guy you were too worried about doing much off the dribble. Um, for a lot of the time, you you were, by that point, you were more worried about him as a shooter. And then you had Barnes and Petrus. They were kind of the, the combo there at the small forward spot. The guy who who ended up being the killer, who really didn't, as we said, didn't he was a rotation guy this year, but didn't fully come into his own until the next year, was J.J. Redick. If he had been maybe a year or two later into his career, Redick, I think that team has a fully different picture because I think what then you might be looking at is, all right, well, well we can't leave Redick, so how are you going to help? Where are you going to send that help to? Because he was he, you know, obviously became what he became. And that year he he was great, forty percent from three that year, but only three 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 point attempts per game in twenty two minutes a night off the bench. So you weren't worried about it from a volume perspective. And I think that was kind of almost the thing where Michael Petrus he he you know shot well that year thirty eight percent, but four attempts per game he got more up. Carter got more up. Rashard Lewis got you know double the three point attempts Reddick did. So you were really at that point Reddick was kind of watch him when he's in there, but we're not worried about him hurting us volume wise. I think that would have changed things. So yeah, I think Vince Carter gets beat up a lot for. I think it's a it's two two things. It's one not recognizing where he was at in his career. He wasn't going to go by guys on any kind of, kind of regular basis. And then I think it was just almost schematically and system wise was what they hoped from him. That wasn't what they ran because Van Gundy, when anything else broke down, I'm just going back to the Jameer Dwight pick and roll because I know that's what works for me.
NBA playoffs are right around the corner, and Locked On NBA is here daily to keep you caught up with all the late season drama. Every Monday, Jackson Gatlin rounds up the three biggest stories around the league, helping to break down the NBA playoffs. Mark your calendars to listen to Locked On NBA every Monday to be up to date. Locked On NBA, available on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yeah, and and Van Gundy, you know, definitely a little bit stubborn of a coach. And and honestly, like, you know, I think this is what ultimately has endeared Vince to a lot of people. He's he's not going to rattle many cages on the court, at least. Like, Like, honestly, like, that might ultimately be his downfall as a player. Um, you know, obviously he's a Hall of Famer. No one's, I, I'm not debating that. I, sure. I, think, I think that he's very clearly a Hall of Famer. But you look at his his peak years. You know, the that that Raptors team in 2001 when he you know missed the three pointer in Game Seven that allowed Philadelphia that allowed was it Milwaukee to advance Philadelphia to advance. I think it was Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yeah, because because he went to his his college graduation. How dare he? How dare? Do how remember, dare? Do you remember that? How dare? How dare he <laughs> oh do goodness. something at noon before a three thirty right? basketball or like a six o'clock basketball? Five thirty yeah, like basketball. Six or seven game. or something. Yeah, I mean, it was crazy. Probably, he had more than enough time. But probably probably not the best look. But you know, you look. You know, I I, I think there's there, you know there's there's another interesting aspect of this twenty ten Magic team that I think is worth exploring too. But Vince Carter's uh, series against the Celtics, he scores twenty three points in game one, and and I think was really the key to Orlando staying in that game. Uh, you know. If, if, if the series had ended after game one, you know, Vince Carter is did everything the Magic had asked him to do. Um, game two, he scores 16 points on 5 for 15 shooting, but misses two critical free throws at the end of the game that would have cut the lead to one. And to me, that's really kind of when Vince Carter broke. He, he, scores, yeah. 50, he scores 15 in game three, but that's a blowout, so that doesn't feel, feel important. Then he scores three in the game, in the game four overtime win, he scores eight on three for 10 shooting, so he's four for 19 in games four and five, the two magic wins. And then he scores 17 in game six, which was essentially a blowout too. So Vince, Vince Carter as an all-star player very much ends in the 2010 Eastern Conference Finals. It's just one of those things where, you know, sort of like Clyde Drexler after the, almost like Clyde Drexler after the 92 Finals, you know, you get to that stage and the pressure becomes too much and all of a sudden you're no longer thought of as that kind of guy. And, and, you know, Vince gets traded to Phoenix the next year. You know, it's kind of scuttling about trying to find his way. And then he finds his way to Dallas where he, you know, kind of carves out a second act to his career as a, as a sixth man, as a role player. And it's really been incredible to watch Vince evolve in that way, in that way. But this was, you know, the 2010 season was very much the end of Vince Carter superstar. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember too, just thinking back on it, that was when you had um by the time they were down three there were three oh in that series, you really had um Stan Van Gundy was kind of searching for stuff, which is not yeah. that's not a criticism because that's just where anybody would be at. But if you remember, remember Dwight and Gortop would share the court for a few minutes per game yeah. each time. And I remember those just being minutes where the Celtics were like, thank you. Like now nah, we, we don't I mean, have game to defend three, you. One game of three was just or... a, just a complete disaster. And yeah, it was you just know, even, even, yeah. even watching back game two. And, and, and I think this is, this is something I did. I don't think I thought about at the time, but watching it back, the magic just lacks so much poise. Yeah. And, and for a team, especially that had been to the finals the previous year, you know, under, you know, had to understand at least on a very, at least their leaders did, how to get to that point. And obviously, you know, maybe Jameer didn't because he wasn't part of the journey to get there. But I think Stan Van Gundy's kind of proclivity to 
be Stan Van Gundy and Dwight Howard's immaturity showed out the most in those first two games as Orlando was losing home court advantage. And, and that's where, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a very big believer of Dwight needed to be himself, that, that he needed to kind of block out all the criticism of his game, which I think a lot of it was frankly, uh, was still very frankly unfair. I think a lot of the national, you know, quote unquote experts wanted Dwight to be a certain kind of player that he wasn't. And Dwight just, he, he listens to that. He listens to that stuff. Um, Whether it's right or wrong, he listened to all of that stuff. And I think he took it very personally. And, and, and so I think that he tried to be someone that he wasn't. And that's part of my theory that so much of what made Dwight Howard great was his joy. And that joy was, was slowly kind of sucked out of him. And that's kind of what ultimately led him to leave Orlando and to, to view Orlando as, as not, you know, Orlando wasn't a winning situation anyway. I don't, bl- I don't necessarily blame him for leaving. How he left is, you know, a symptom of his immaturity. And I think the 2010 Eastern Conference Finals really displayed how Dwight Howard needed to, to grow up and kind of understand when to be serious, how to inject his personality and his fun into the game but ultimately how he needed to be the leader to, to pull the team together and get them out of, you know, kind of crisis points. Yeah. And I think though going against Garnett and Perkins for the second straight, well, Garnett wasn't there the prior year, but, but Perkins and then add Garnett to it. Those were two guys. Who, Wallace who always gave Dwight. Problems. Yeah. Yeah, exactly though. Yeah. Forget about Wallace too. So those guys just are guys who they, if nothing else had an act for getting under guys skin and they would just needle him. And I remember they'd push him and I remember they would get up in his face. And I think you're right. I remember, you know, Dwight went from being kind of the the big you know kind of the big smiling neck shack right in 2009 to all of a sudden he was this kind of like sullen surly dude by the end of the 2010 playoff run and I think a lot of that was the the Celtics big men you know were just they they got in up under his skin and then the other thing was I'd forgotten until I was looking through these box scores I kind of remembered Rondo playing well but I'm looking through Rondo the box scores I, yeah he did really just really destroyed um uh Jameer Nelson. Yeah. Especially in game Nelson, two. Nelson always struggled with bigger point guards. Like Chauncey yeah. Phillips. Like yeah. I, I did a I I did a, a, a I talked with Adam Morris of, of Locked On Nuggets about you know hypothetical magic nuggets series. And I was even looking back at that 09 Nuggets team. And like my initial thought, you know, when Carmelo Anthony said what he said about the Nuggets sweeping the magic in 09, I thought that's that's ridiculous. The magic would have won that series. But when I looked closer at it, I was like, you know. The, the Nuggets would have been right able over, to yeah. throw Kenyon Martin, Nene. Nene always gave Dwight problems. Yep. Chris Anderson, they had guys they could throw at Dwight Howard, and, and the question would be whether they could they could get out to the shooters. But Chauncey Billups, the Magic would have had no answer for him. And, you know, it's the same way with Rondo. Rondo just gave Jameer Nelson problems. And, and you know, n- everyone loves Jameer Nelson. Like, you know, Magic lifer, you know, if, if the Magic retired jerseys, you know, he'd be one of those sentimental picks that, that 14 could be up in the rafters. Um, but... He had a lot of flaws as a point guard. And, and, and again, Jameer Nelson saved that series. He kept the magic from getting swept. That game yeah. four is, is Jameer Nelson's apex mountain, um, to, steal a, to steal a phrase from, from our friends <laughs> from at the Rewatchables. Yeah. Um, he, he, he won that game and, and yeah. was a big part of winning game five. But Rondo had his number, you know, really throughout his career. And, and obviously, there's always the reason why the magic seemed to be shopping for Jameer Nelson replacement, even though Nelson was, was so good and important to the team. 
Yeah, and that was really Rondo at that point. This was the year where he was starting to transition into being the guy they were leaning on more, which they would lean on him even more in the 2011 season and then 12 and then ultimately 13. That was kind of his his team at that point. That was where um, Pierce and Garnett, Gar- Garnett then was you know, definitely just the kind of uh, 15 to 20 minute a night veteran at that point. Pierce wasn't what he once was. And this was really kind of the start of it was this, this run. And I, the last thing for me is I don't think you can discount to that. That Celtics team in 2009 really felt like we were robbed of something special. And Orlando was part of the group that robbed us of that because they had knocked them out of the playoffs in the prior year. I think that was a second round series yeah. and they had knocked them out. And I think that Celtics team came back with it's not happening. And I think you saw that with those two wins in Orlando, especially to start this series. It was, we're going to lock in. You're not going to score. And that was what that team always had. Even when this team, this 2010 Celtics team lost in game seven against the Lakers. If you go back and watch it, that is a awful awful basketball oh it, it was a terrible game to finish it's <laughs> one of the best game seven finishes in, in nba history but but it, oh it was, man it was, we, not, yeah. it was not Cavs <laughs> no and it was just i mean it was a, a lot of pushing and shoving and guys you know bricking shots because not necessarily just missing open shots but guys up in guys faces that was a, you know famously kobe won six to 24 and uh the celtics said you know what he's gonna shoot it every time down and let's just make sure and and it was just it, it was a mess but that was that Celtics team and this was the really the last year they fully had that of we're going to lock you down and we're going to make sure you do not score on us and once that happened with Orlando and when Vince couldn't be that guy or or wasn't able to be that guy or whatever that's really where it all fell apart no more and, so and Dwight and Dwight I mean not to put everything on Vince because I, I do think history yeah. has put a lot of the blame on Vince as good as Dwight Howard was he was not skilled enough to mm-hmm. kind of drive the team from the post. You couldn't. No, he needed. You help. couldn't dump yeah. the ball into him yep. and and get him to score. Like it, that 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 wasn't his game ever no. to begin with. And 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 you know again the fair criticism, the perhaps a fair criticism from you know the Charles Barkleys, the Shacks of the world, is that, you know, if you're going to be the best player, if you're going to be a team leader, you've got to be able to lift your team up when you when you hit that wall. And yep. and that was not Dwight Howard's game. And no, that's, why the magic were, yep. that's why the Magic were always searching for that guy, whether it was Hito Turkoglu initially, whether it was Vince Carter, whether it was going back to Hito, whether it was going to Jason Richardson. They, they were trying to find that guy, and, and, and they could never find it. And honestly, that's ultimately why Dwight left. I mean, you can, you can, we, can, we can debate and we can criticize how Dwight left, but Dwight leaving was the right move for him at the end of the day because the, the team could not find the options to, to, to optimize him. Sure. Yeah. Dwight's destiny probably should have been to be maybe the most overqualified 1A on a championship team. He really, he was just yeah. was never felt like he was going to be the number one guy, but he would have been your 1A, you know, right most, there. Most, I mean, and, and, and that's that's part of the problem with centers. Yeah. Because at the yeah, end of the day, a center, a center yeah. needs a guard to give him the ball. And so a center is always, I mean, you look at the, the great teams in NBA history, a lot of them have centers. A lot of them have all-star guards too. I mean, you know, Russell had Havlicek, had Havlicek and Kuzi. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Shaq had Shaq had Kobe and Wade. Uh, you know, Elijah yeah. had had Dre- had Drexler and had Drexler that second year. Um, you yeah, know, Kenny to, Smith, you know, maybe 90, and Vernon maybe 90, Maxwell. 94, he could carry year. the team. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So, yeah, you, you know, had, Chamberlain yep. had West. Chamberlain had West when uh, yep. was West West on that championship team? Yeah, uh, Chamberlain yeah, had I West. So. Yep. Um, you know, you you go back and look at the great centers of NBA history. That Kareem had magic. They all had guards who could deliver them the ball. And, yeah, and, and it's just that's, too that's hard just for a center to take over without someone getting him the ball. And that was, yeah. you know, I, 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 right. I did, I did. I, yeah. I did not know you at this point in 2010. Yeah. We had not. No, I don't think that. so. No, I wasn't, I wasn't um, covering the team yet. And so all I remember is, I mean, one of my best friends, um, my, one of my best friends, Philippe, huge magic fan. I remember he and I would talk all the time and his single biggest gripe was why can nobody make an entry pass to Dwight? Like, like, why is this so oh, hard? See, see, <laughs> for, see like, this. I think, I think Richard Lewis and Hito Turkoglu are two of the best. And honestly, Vince Carter yep. too, I thought made fantastic entry passes. I thought and, they did okay with it, but it, it was definitely the years prior with Hito and Lewis. They, they were able to do oh, it. Oh, they were better. Yo, know, and they would run almost that kind of pseudo triangle look. Um, yeah. I know it wasn't the triangle offense, but that's almost what the, the spacing would be. But yeah, but then it was after that. I really, and I just remember being like, yeah, you're no one, right, no man. one could like, throw Dwight a hard time entry pass. To yeah. I mean, I, I look at the magic now, no one throws Vooch a good entry pass. No, like the, the, the entry pass is just a oh. dead art. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it really is. And, and you know, I think part of it goes along with the post-up is kind yeah. of a dead thing. When you only run, you know, you go back to the NBA I grew up on in the eighties and the nineties, Post up was your primary offense offensive option. You you ran that, and if you could run a pick and roll, that was good, and that was you know part of why Stockton and Malone were so devastating because they could do both. But then, as the post up has died, it is not surprising me that it has turned into the lack of a post up has turned really into the lack of being able to make an entry pass because guys only do it what five to ten times a game now yeah and it's a, chick- it's a chicken or an egg problem too yeah. like and you're more the post-up, the post-up has died killing the entry pass and the entry pass has died killing the post-up yeah 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 definitely so that's we, we just went off on a tangent there but oh, yeah but just you know i think it is important to that kind of bigger thing about that was why dwight had so much trouble lifting the team because the center just can't do it on his own he's not gonna dwight was not a rip and run guy he wasn't gonna get the rebound and bring it up himself make the play and get get into the paint he was always gonna get it get it off to the next guy and then be down there waiting to get it back and it was never just going to be on straight post-ups and all the the rare times they ran straight post-ups it really went well because it just wasn't his game yeah yeah and 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 i always said this about dwight and again this is why i think he let criticism of his game influence his actual game he was always best catching the ball on the move if you like i was i was just begging like have richard lewis go block the block set a cross screen to get dwight across the middle so he can catch guys pinned down yeah. you know, deeper, deeper post position where, where Dwight really struggled was when he just kind of turned and tried to seal. Cause then, you know, like guys could just push him off his spot and yeah. he wasn't skilled enough as a post-up player. Now, 2011, I don't think Dwight gets enough credit for how advanced his post game, you know, was relatively in 2011. Um, and he abandoned that for some reason. Like he never really built on that. Some of it might've been the injury, but the 2011 season when Howard probably should have been the MVP, um, his post game was was really advanced and was really good, but it all, always came from a standstill, which I never thought was where Howard was most effective. Um, you know, uh, I, I think he brought up something interesting. You know, talking about post ups, though, what what I still find interesting about the 2009 and the 2010 Magic is how influential and how much of a preview they became for what the league would become. Yeah, hundred percent. Is, is you know, I always say you can draw a straight line from. The '95 Magic to the se- to the '95 Magic '95 Rockets to the seven seconds or less Suns to the '09 Magic to the Warriors, um, essentially because those teams all kind of proved 
you could win shooting three-pointers. I mean, like you even go back to 95, teams weren't shooting three-pointers that much. You know, the, 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 and, and if you were shooting three-pointers, it was because it was a gimmick. You weren't, a yeah. good, you weren't necessarily a good team for doing it. And this was when the three-point line was moved in, or 96, the three-point line was moved in a few feet to try and encourage teams to, sh- to use it more. The, the 09 Magic and the 2010 Magic, I think, were part of, I think their ultimate legacy is they proved you could win shooting from the outside. Yeah, and also when you have bigs who can take that, because back then teams were, it sounds so weird to say back then, it was only 10 years ago, but all the way back Lots then. Lots happened in 10 years uh, <laughs> Teams were still playing with two bigs, almost always. Everybody started two bigs, and the magic over that course of that, that kind of era of the magic was, it was Dwight, and that second big was always, whether you wanted to call it Lewis or Turkoglu, it didn't really matter. They were fairly interchangeable. Those two guys always, their game was more perimeter-based. It was going to be more, I'm going to hang out outside. And then Ryan Anderson kind of grew into that. Brandon Bass became a pretty good jump shooter. Those those groups were really the the ones where it's, yeah, hey, we're going to start two bigs and Dwight, but we're just going to play four out around Dwight. We're just going to him roam inside and do his thing. Then whether it be off you know, driving dish plays or we're going to run pick and roll, we're going to run some of those cross-screen actions. But we're worried about that. Part of the reason that he would get freed up so often on those cross screens was you didn't dare let Lewis or or Turkaloo or then Anderson or or anybody run free, especially along that baseline, because that corner three that was basically automatic for those guys. So yeah, I a hundred percent remember that. That was so much, you know, just watching that team was kind of like man, it, it really was. It took a guy like Kevin Garnett who was athletic and quick and could tag inside and then get all the way back outside. And he's so long um, to really be, to be able to defend that. That was what really kind of, when they beat that Cleveland team, that was why, because the Cavs just, they didn't have that second big who could do anything against uh, uh, Rashard Lewis, especially. They just didn't have any way to cover him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's, I, I mean, unfortunately I, I think the 09 and, and 2010 magic, you know, they'll, they'll go down as, an extremely influential team that, that just didn't win a title. You know, yeah. you know, we talk a lot about the seven seconds or less team, you know, I, you know, no one's writing, you know, we haven't had someone write the book on the 09 and 2010 magic. Um, you know, maybe someone should do that. You know, I'm, we're, I'll, I'll, I'll start making my book proposal now. <laughs> um, just, just so, just so they can be lionized in some way, like those seven seconds or less team. But, but I really do think that, that these two teams specifically really changed the NBA dramatically. And, and I think, Ultimately, the the twenty the twenty twelve Heat kind of made made it reality, made it like, oh, yeah. you, you can win this way. Like the Heat yeah, essentially they, decided they went super small. They said we're not playing, we're not playing a center. We're gonna play Chris yeah. Bosch at center. Yep, yeah, and they, just spread the floor with five shooters. Yeah, yeah, and everybody wants to think it was the Warriors, but the Warriors just went went to what other you know the Heat had kind of done before them. Even the Thunder were doing that to some extent, where they would pull Perkins. Once Ibaka, once Ibaka started hitting threes, that that's, yep. the Thunder really exactly. changed, changed things. Yeah, that group. Yeah, yeah, and that was it. Yeah, because they would. I remember that group. They downgrade to and they would play Ibaka, Green, and Durant, which sounds weird because those guys are all like six ten, six eleven, and long and and big. But but they that was you know that was crazy back then. up a position. Yeah, so it was, you know, but I mean, and then the Warriors obviously took it to a whole different level because you had Draymond. What was different for them was Draymond could facilitate the offense. And that yeah. was what 
you know, became really, that was what to me, less than their ability to go small and hold their own defensively was the fact that he could run the offense and then you could run Curry and clay off all sorts of screens and picks and screen them for each other. And I love the play that they, they used to run all the time where uh, Curry or clay would go, one of them would go through first and this, the other one would follow almost right behind them. Then you took that first one away and then the second one's right there and there's nothing you can do about it. Cause it's, it's going to be there. And it's just, you know, that, 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 team really they just kind of built on what everybody else had done for them but yeah you're you're definitely right that magic team took it to whole you know different levels with playing playing really four out that was one of the first teams i can really remember hearing that term of four out on any sort of regular basis and credit to stan van gundy because that's not at all how he came up um, as a coach, he came up under, you know, coaching with his brother and coaching with Pat Riley, um, where you, you played two bigs and you jumped up the game defensively and, and that was it. And you worked through the post and everything and credit to him for saying, you know, and I think we can build this offense where we play, you know, let this one guy have the paint to himself and let everybody else hang out around the arc. And, and what's really funny about that was that was a complete accident too. Cause, yeah. cause, you know, I think, I think Stan had the idea of doing playing Lewis and Turkaloo together a lot. But the plan when they signed Lewis was Lewis signed and said, I'm not playing power forward. I want to be a small yeah. forward. I want to be on the perimeter. <laughs> yeah. And Dwight, like before training camp or early in training camp in 2008, you know, made a move and bro- and continued his tradition of injuring players in practice, um, bro- you know, tore Tony Batiste's rotator cuff. Yeah. That's and so right. the Magic all of a sudden were down there starting power <laughs> forward. And Stan Van Gundy essentially, uh, you know, called, you know, Steve Clifford's told this story. I know Stan Van Gundy's told this story. You know, they, they called Richard Lewis into, into Stan's office and said, you know, we want to start you, at, we want to start you next to Turk. We think that's our best lineup. We're down to T. Are you okay with that? And, you know, Lewis, you know, even though he was the big time free agent, you know, Max guy that they signed, you know, a couple offseason, the, the offseason before in 2000, in 2007. Um, he said, he said, sure, I'll do it. Cause you know, Lewis was also just kind of a chill, you know, no, you know, not ruffling any feathers type of guy. And I, I you know, honestly, that mistake would probably change the league in a lot of ways. I'll tell you what's funny is this is me a couple of time here when that team was, was put together when they signed Richard Lewis, I remember saying to myself, if one of the first times I ever really consciously had this thought was what in the world are they doing? You can only play with one basketball. Dwight needs, you know, 15 shots a night and Jameer Nelson's going to have the ball just because he's the point guard. That's still how the thought process was there. Turk is going to get a bunch of shots. Lewis is going to get a bunch of shots. And the other thing I think they did too was, yep, that's going to be what happens. And nobody else is going to take more than five or six shots a game. And that's it. We're going to make sure that those four guys are the ones who are getting all the pro- all the good quality touches in these games, and we're going to we're going to make it happen. And that that team, you know, yeah, again, you know, just another piece of yeah, really finding a way to make it work with a bunch of guys. And the the key to it was because they could all shoot. You know, I'm just looking back at that 2002 2018 seven seven eight team. You know, uh, Turkaloo, Nelson, and Lewis all over forty percent three point shooting and, and of all guys, you know, forgotten name, Maurice Evans, just Bogans. behind at, uh, at 39. Yeah. Bogans was there 36. So he was a little bit under, but you know, and then that was a, uh, JJ wasn't a rotation guy just yet. But I think JJ, I think JJ requested and, a trade that year. 
I think he might have. I think you're right. I think that was when he was like, hey, if I'm not going to play, you know, get me somewhere else. Because, yeah, because J.J. was, you know, college player of the year type guy and, you know, everything else from his time at Duke. But, yeah, that team really, you know, that whole era, that that whole group as they came together and grew. And that's the other cool thing, too, is they grew from 2007 into, you know, that 2010 team. And that span of a few years really grew into to that title contender, which is neat. It wasn't thrown together on the fly and come together that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that is, you know, it 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 wasn't some flat some like quick flash like you know obviously like when the magic I mean, uh, you look back at magic history there there isn't a lot of building it's a lot of you know they win the lottery with Shaq they win the lottery to get Penny and all of a sudden yeah. within five years they are a playoff team and you know five years of existence they're a playoff team and you know within th- you know three years with Shaq they're in the finals and and now all of a you know they got the championship pressure. That 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 you know they they go out and sign Tracy McGrady and and you know you know they go from one era straight into another because they're able to use free agency to get there. This this team was really built from the ground up. You know they drafted Dwight, they drafted Jameer, they signed Hito Turkoglu to a mid level exception contract. I mean I, I remember you know Bill Simmons did his trade value column. Yep. And Turkoglu one year was I think when the Magic first signed Turkoglu, he had Turkoglu listed as one of the worst contracts in the league. By the I end of that, that contract, he was on the best contract in the league because he yep. was just so vastly <laughs> underpaid for what the Magic used him for. They, you know, they make the big free agent signing with Richard Lewis, and then they just add a bunch of guys that fit their style. I mean, you know, Stan Van Gun, you know, say what you want about the Magic trading Trevor Reza. It did ultimately, you know, kind of bite them, bite them from behind in the 2009 finals. Ariza couldn't shoot. And so the Magic go out and get Maurice Evans, who could shoot a little bit. Go out and get Brian Cook, who was a, a, stre- a early stretch four, you know, not quite yep. what they wanted, but a stretch four. You know, Van Gundy had very specific ideas of how he wanted to play, and everything they did from that point forward was to get guys to play that style. You know, they they signed Brandon Bass was probably the one guy who didn't quite fit what they wanted to do, but that was more insurance. It's like you know, in the playoffs, we're going to have to match up with another big, and and, yeah. and 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 you know, maybe Ryan Anderson can't defend that. We need to have that insurance. We need to have a guy that can go out and defend, you know, a Kevin Garnett if we need to for a little while. And 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 that's that's kind of what they what they did by covering themselves that way. And Bass ended up being able to hit, you know, from 16, 17, 18 feet. And that was enough. Yeah, yeah and then I think the just the last thing that kind of killed off this era, I think, was a lockout. Because I remember that team, they just yeah. other really other than Dwight, they didn't come back in great shape. I remember, you know, I mean, Dwight, say what you want about him, he was always, you know, ready to go. You know, when the season started, he was always in phenomenal shape. But I remember Turkoglu showed up a little heavy. Jameer, who was always, that was always the worry with him, was a little heavy. And now you had those guys, you know, pushing 30. Jason Richardson. And it's not, it's really not only the they showed up, and, and it's not only that, they showed up and it was Dwight's contract year. So the pressure yeah. was ramped up to 20. Exactly. And, 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 and then Dwight, yeah. Dwight requested to get traded early on that year. And that's, that's honestly when the Magic should have traded him. They shouldn't have. They, yeah, they should yeah, have not have, that. Yeah, because then it just became the silliest that silliness that yeah. we all know. Yeah. And, and every, I mean, else, we could, we could, we could talk for a whole hour about the nightmare <laughs> no, that, yeah. and how it's yeah. everyone's and no fault one would want and nobody won, and most <laughs> yeah. especially the fans didn't win. Everybody no, lost that. No. Everyone yeah. was wrong. It was, yeah. it was, it was a terrible way to end what to me is the most successful run in Magic history. Uh, it, no, absolutely. Two thousand nine, yeah. two thousand ten, and, and even to some extent two thousand eleven. Obviously. I think it was 07, or 08, 07, 08, 09, 10, 11, and 12. Six straight years in the playoffs is a magic record. They get yeah. out of the first round three straight years, which is a magic record. They, get, they win their first finals game. They get to the finals in 09. They you know, have a really good shot at winning in 2010. Like, 
you know, when I, when I tell people, I think Dwight, you know, Dwight Howard has a very strong case to be the best player in Magic history, and you know, that's that's a debate we'll have another day. Uh, you know, hashtag Magic Madness. Um, but Dwight oversaw the most successful run in Magic history, the longest sustained longest sustained success in Magic history, and and, and he deserves a lot of credit for that. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I, it's you know we don't we won't get into it today, but I think you're absolutely right. I think he should be in the mix and you know heavily, heavily in the mix. He was you know just absolutely great, really from almost from the time he came in. He was you know surprisingly good very early on, and then just only got better from that point. And it's it's funny because I think this is one where I bet you five years from now when he's retired, you may have almost one of those shack moments of you know what I shouldn't have done. I shouldn't have left Orlando. Because it was never as good for him anywhere else, and it was never going to be as good for him anywhere else. And that's unfortunately a lesson guys learn over and over and over again in the NBA. Rarely does a guy leave and it gets better. But, you know, I, th- I think his best years were clearly here with the Magic, and he was absolutely, you know, he was just a dominant force on both ends of the floor, you know, for so long. So I'm with you on that, um, you know, thoughts yeah, of I, his. And know, I think, I mean, I think, I think history. Dwight, I think Dwight, you know, I don't think he'd say that publicly. Quite yet because I don't think he. No, it's you know, going to be a while. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I still years. don't think he has the maturity to say that. And <laughs> that may and, be true and, as and, well. And sometimes, and like with Shaq, I think Shaq says that. I I don't think I think he says that more to appease Orlando fans than actually believing that. Like going to yeah, LA, something there, winning those titles. Like Shaq, yeah, I mean, Shaq likes to play games. Fine. Yeah. Dwight, Dwight. I mean, I think. I think, you know, I know Magic fans are still angry at Dwight. I see, I still see that whenever I talk about him and, and, and I've, I'm personally, I've forgiven him. You know, some of that is I was around that Dwight Mayor team and I, I don't think it was all Dwight's fault. I think I, I, again, everybody lost that. Nobody came out a winner. Um, and, 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 and it was everyone's fault. Um, so I, I, I don't think it's fair. I keep telling fans like, look guys, you might still be a little angry with Dwight, but Five six years after he retires, you know he's gonna he's gonna be in the Hall of Fame. He's yeah. gonna be in the Orlando Magic Hall of Fame. If if the Magic retire jerseys, twelve should one hundred percent be hanging in the rafters. It's it it's that's not a question to me. Like he and is not for Gary he, Clark. Yeah, not for Gary Clark. <laughs> not for Tobias Harris either. Yeah. Um, he is very clearly, you know, the Magic have a Mount Rushmore, and and he is very clearly on that Mount Rushmore. And he's probably one of the top two players in Magic history. And and time heals all wounds. Everyone will forget each other eventually. My thanks to Keith Smith for hopping on the podcast to discuss a little bit about the 2010 and Dwight Dwight Howard era Orlando Magic teams. He'll be back on with us again for our next episode of Locked on Magic where we will discuss the current Magic team, how their season went, what was on the horizon for them the rest of this season, and more importantly, what happens in the offseason and where the Magic go next. It was a great conversation. You'll have that to look forward to the next time we see you on Locked on Magic. Another long, long episode is... As uh, when, I, when I have guests, we tend to talk a lot and we cover a lot of different topics. So my thanks again to Keith Smith. You can follow him on Twitter at KeithSmithNBA. Be sure to check out his great stuff as he does a great job covering the NBA as well as keeping track of all the salary information and collective bargaining agreement issues uh, that, or at least uh, as, as it pertains to salary cap, that, that we might see uh, happen over the course of the offseason. You, of course, follow me on Twitter at R underscore OMD. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LockedOnMagic. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Music, Stitcher, 
Stitcher, TuneIn, Himalaya, Google Play, all the fun places to download podcasts to your podcast-enabled listening device. Don't forget to check out some of the other great podcasts on the Lockdown Podcast Network, including Chad Ford's NBA Big Board, the venerated draft guru, now has a podcast on the Lockdown Podcast Network. On his latest episode, he redrafts the 2016 NBA Draft. Were the Sixers right to take Ben Simmons number one? Probably. Would Brandon Ingram or Pascal Siakam have been better picks? Very interesting debate. You can find that on Chad Ford's NBA Big Board. Download that wherever you download podcasts today. But that's going to do it for me today. I want to thank you all again for listening to today's episode of Locked on Magic. For Orlando Magic Daily and Locked on Magic, this has been Philip Ross and Mike. I'll see you all again next time for another episode of Locked on Magic. You are Locked on Magic, your daily Orlando Magic podcast. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. members. You can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.